Oh, here we go, fellas. All right. It's 1-800-HOT-NIGHT. You've called 1-800-HOT-NIGHT. What took you so long? I want to ask you for some advice, because I think they're going to take me to a foster family, but I don't want to. I got to go. No, 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 no. Just wait. Don't hang up, please. They ain't going to take you. I won't let them. Then I won't let them either. All right, we're the 57 posse. So you want to go back there or what? I can't. Can't breathe, okay? They took him. Took who, Tommy? Make your own decisions, kid. Be a man, that's what men do. On today's show, engineer-turned-indie-writer-director Nick Ritchie talks about his freshly released feature, 1-800-HOT-NIGHT, and delves into finances, distribution, and what it takes to bring art to life. Find the full transcripts and more at thepracticalfilmmaker.com. I'm your host, Tanya Musgrave, and today we're talking indie features with Nick Ritchie, who just recently finished 1-800-HOT-NIGHT, based on his life as a 13-year-old who embarks on an urban odyssey to escape foster care with the help of a phone sex operator. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. <laughs> so that's quite a deep well to dive directly into. So let's get to know you a bit better first. Though, sure. Like this might also be a loaded question, <laughs> but how did you get to this point in your life? Well, I grew up in Vancouver, Washington. So I was just right across the street from Portland, Oregon. Grew up in a, you know, small kind of poor community, a Section 8, you know, based apartment building it was sort of a, a dead end street with just nothing but apartment buildings and had a really diverse, eclectic friend group and diverse mm -hmm. set of experiences. My older brother and I were the first two in our family to go to college. And mm -hmm. I stayed in Portland, went to Lewis and Clark College okay. and actually got a degree in economics. I always loved storytelling, always loved performing, needed money to pay for school. I was working two jobs, still wasn't uh, covering everything. Mm -hmm. And so I saw an audition to host the Kids WB up in Portland, and I went down to the Aquatic Center, auditioned, got the part of the Get host in the Kids WB. Yeah. <laughs> True story. So I was, I was like in between Pokemon, being like, next up is this, you know, and then the A paper <laughs> contest is is this week. Send in your A papers, and what? you can win tickets to Disney on Ice or something. So <laughs> it was a hilarious job. Hilarious because I also sort of have a deeper, I think more intimidating voice. And the my co-host was like a 14-year-old girl. And so it was just like clearly I knew I was I was gonna get fired. I was like this, they're gonna keep her, they're gonna get rid of me. And they did. But before that happened, there was an agent that had reached out to me seeing me on television, asked if I'd be interested in taking acting class and having an agent. And I was in my Senior year of college at that point had just, you know, done an internship for Boeing in the integrated defense systems, wanting to become a parametric estimator for the defense department, essentially. Okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was that was my track. So this is I've I've obviously veered way off course. Okay. I started taking acting class in Portland. And yeah. what happened was I started getting introduced to casting directors. And, you know, one casting director in particular said, Hey, look, I know you've got this job offer from Boeing. You graduate in a couple months, but I think you should come down to Los Angeles for a couple of months and audition. From the day I graduated, Lewis and Clark, May 8th, 2005, so I'm aging myself now, until <laughs> August, I basically had this like three month period to go down to Los Angeles, sleep on a friend's floor, which I did. I was in a sleeping bag on the floor of his place and went and just auditioned. And 
one of my first auditions in Los Angeles, I, I booked the lead role in this horror film by Gail Ann Hurd, who's a very legendary producer. She produced the Terminator franchise. Mm. She produces The Walking Dead. Mm. And next thing I know, I'm on a plane to Fiji to shoot this film (laughs) and not going to be going back to Boeing. And so that's what really got me to Los Angeles. It was sort of a series of fortunate events that brought me here. And then through the process of acting, I really started to find that I wanted to be behind the camera. I wanted to tell stories in that way. And so I started writing and teaching myself how to write and kind of low-key directing really bad little short things with my friends that <laughs> never saw the light of day but yeah you start to cut your teeth and and back then it was like a bad flip phone you couldn't make movies on your phone you know <laughs> yeah. it was like yeah, a, yeah, the, yeah. <laughs> the the motorola razor you know or something you know, <laughs> you know what i mean I, that's, really, that's what it was yeah. it's very pixelated like, like a nintendo video game but i, I went and acted in another ind- indie feature and i came back and said i want to kind of like write and co-direct you know produce this this TV show idea. And mm. it was a funny little thing. And I got Dick Van Dyke to come act in it. And we Dang, shot this what? thing. Yeah, it was super cool. And and I just <laughs> met him kind of dinking around in Malibu, you know, and he's such a sweetheart of a guy that he came and I said, would you come do this like spec pilot with me through a friend of mine who, who, who knew him also. And, yeah, and yeah. he came and he filmed the show with us. <laughs> in the show, we rob his house and he plays himself. And so he, <laughs> he catches us and ties us up. And Oh my gosh, that's um, amazing. It was a comedy. And so I was, I was trying to steal stuff so I could get money for a, a nose job. And <laughs> he ends up giving this lecture about how, he was told during, and this is a true story, actually, he overheard the producer of Chitty Chitty Bang Bang talking to the director in the next room while he was getting his makeup done that, why have we hired this guy? His nose is way too big. No one's going to like him on TV. Oh. Oh, no. And so he tells my character in this pilot, like, don't do it, you know, just be, be yourself. <laughs> so anyway, this was kind of me dipping my toes in the water there on the on the writing directing side. And then over time, I continued to just practice and practice and practice and Writing kind of came faster. I had gotten a script optioned with a a great producer at Sony and ended up getting a couple TV shows picked up for development at CBS Studios and ABC Studios, respectively, which was really great. And then in between that, again, like directing a little commercial stuff with I have a producing partner and then finally kind of deciding, hey, look, I, I the TV development side is, is is a rough road. And basically the way it works in TV is you can develop this thing for two years. If the network decides or the studio decides not to move forward, you're kind of back to square one and no one gets to see it. It, mm. it just doesn't get to live. And I thought, well, we, I have to make a feature film. So about three years ago, I wrote and directed my first feature film called Lolo mm-hmm. uh, that was released theatrically in a couple of cities, New York, Los Angeles. And we did like a road show up and down, up the West Coast and in Las Vegas and a few other places. Right now it's streaming on Paramount Plus. And then... Nice. The pandemic hits, you know, my wife and I were looking to buy a place, buy our first home in LA, which, you know, is, is sort of its own fresh hell. I don't, I don't, uh, I don't try, you know, for anyone listening to this, you know, try to be a millionaire before you try buying a house in Los Angeles. Mercy. Otherwise it's a real bummer. Oh Otherwise you're gosh. like, so you're saying I can live in this 400 square foot condo for $800,000. Wow. Really? Um, you shouldn't yeah. have. Yeah, really bleak. So we were getting ready to buy this place and we actually lost out on this house that we wanted. And we kind of said, you know what? I I mean, I want to buy a house, sure, but like movies, you know, so we 
took what we had saved for a down payment on the house. And that was half of our financing for this new film, 1-800-HOT-NIGHT, that mm-hmm. I wrote and directed. We went and kind of nickel and dimed the budget together and got some amazing actors and we shot the film. And now we have a great distributor in Quiver Distribution. The movie comes out November 4th. We've we've had a spectacular festival run, which I'm, I'm really grateful for. And, and our final festival screening, we're, we're actually, we're a marquee film at the Austin Film Festival this week. So we, we close nice. out the festival on November 3rd. Oh, what yeah. nice. Yeah, it's really fun. Yeah. Congratulations. So Thanks so much. So we're, re- we're just really excited and it's been a bit of a Byzantine road to get to this. I almost <laughs> became a parametric estimator for the Boeing company. I was a host for the Kids WB shortly, acted in a few films, got tied up by with rope by Dick Van Dyke, and then <laughs> eventually ended up writing and directing my own, my own features. <laughs> so, the most ragtag. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you didn't go to school for this. You really kind of like learned how to knit your parachute while you were falling. <laughs> yeah, or or I think I really just kind of belly flopped into like a, a, a swamp or something. I, I don't really know if I even had a parachute. I think I, I've, I've definitely been kicked in the stomach a few times. And, and uh, <laughs> while I've been here, you know, this is my, I guess it's what it would. So if I moved here in 2005, I don't even, I, I I don't even want to say it out loud. It's, it's sort of 17 years of... You want me to say it? Uh, okay, all right, all right, yeah, 17 yeah. years. <laughs> 17 years of, of uh, Los Angeles. But I, I, I love the city. It's just, mm-hmm. yes, I, I did not have any prior education on this side of things. I I basically read books, Yeah. you know, tested out, wrote yeah. and wrote and wrote every single day, read about directing, found the resources, talked to directors, talked to DPs. And have tried to sort of, yeah, stitch together a toolbox that would allow me the opportunity to tell the stories I want to tell. When you say like you talk to like producers, talk to directors and that kind of thing, was it like the connections through your acting jobs that you did or did you just like track them down somehow? Sometimes through connections from acting jobs, yes. Yeah. Acting class, because a lot of people are multi-hyphenate. So yeah. someone could be an actor and they're also a special effects, you know, coordinator <laughs> yeah, yeah. and they also direct and so there, there's you. a lot of that. I worked at a restaurant in Malibu called the Marmalade Cafe. Mm-hmm. There I met producers. I met, you know, a writer and who's someone who's become a longtime friend, a man named Randall Wallace, who wrote the movie Braveheart and became okay. a mentor to me in a lot of ways. And people like that, that just sort of, mm-hmm. you know, being in the town, it's the benefit of living in Los Angeles. I mean, yes, you can write and direct from anywhere, but here you might just be having breakfast next to Christopher Nolan and strike mm-hmm. up conversation because you happen to be wearing a, you know, some <laughs> obscure comic book t-shirt that he loves. Yeah. And now Christopher Nolan's your buddy and you're yeah. talking Phil. Yeah. So yeah. Th- these kind of things happened and there was never like a, here, well, let me give this opportunity to you, but it was a chance to bounce ideas. And mm-hmm. there's times that you fall down really hard trying to get something created. And I've had those experiences multiple times where you're just, you know, pretty, pretty heartbroken and sometimes those people the the veterans that you get to meet are able to put it into perspective for you yeah. and, and pick and help pick you back up because when you're looking up to this person and you think well they must have just flown in on their private jet and everything went well <laughs> they're like oh no let me tell you all the ways i fell yeah. getting to this position and it makes you realize you're you're definitely trotting a well-worn path <laughs> yeah 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 I mean, that sounds like you have a very specific story in mind when you're talking about this. Like, do you mind if I ask? No, yeah, absolutely. So like uh, one great one great example, once I realized you know, with my producing partner, Zach, that we really wanted to make 
this transition and we had, we had optioned a script. We'd raised some money, put some money together and optioned a script from a writer that we thought was really great. And we got some spectacular people involved and, and I kind of saw a path to getting the, the movie made and we were trying to make it for, you know, 5 million, uh, just a lot of money. Mm. We we didn't have five million dollars. We had a couple hundred thousand dollars of seed money to try to make this happen, mm-hmm. and without you know getting into crazy detail, you know we just weren't able to attract the cast we needed to justify the budget, mm-hmm. and the project fell apart. And we just we really ran out of real estate. You know that's the you know when you're optioning scripts, you have a runway, yeah. and when that runway runs out, they can decide not to let you can continue with it and at that point we'd spent all this money Mm. really put our hearts into this thing and it didn't go and we're sitting there you know just going oh my god what have we done we would have been better off like spending two hundred fifty thousand dollars on on some lenses you know and just rented (laughs) those out and yeah you know then it's a real investment now this is just flushed down the drain Mm -hmm. and i remember going to randy and telling him about it as I'm like serving him eggs at the marmalade cafe and being like, mm-hmm. Hey man, you know, this just happened. I'm, I'm really sad. And he just basically opened up and said, look, you know how many movies I've had like green lit quote unquote, you know, put my whole life on hold. I'm in the location. I've like floats where, you know, and it falls apart and, mm-hmm. and it's in, you have to understand that every one of those things is essentially a new part of graduate school. Like think of it as film school and you're getting, you just got this really, really valuable knowledge. And yes, maybe it cost a quarter million dollars, but that's what people have to pay. Mm-hmm. So you're not special. You paid what everyone has to pay in this industry, you know, mm. to go through the fire. It was tough to hear, but it was also yeah. correct. He's, he's not, he's not saying that everyone's got to go lose a quarter million dollars. He's saying mm. that your experience is not unique in that, it, but what matters is how you take the information and the knowledge you just mm-hmm. gained mm-hmm. and then do it better the next time. Cause there yeah. will be a next time if you want there to be a next time. That was a specific experience where I think he really picked me up and helped me refocus and say, yeah, okay, that movie didn't work out. It's over next. Mm-hmm. And that put me back in the writing chair, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That would be extremely encouraging coming from a writer who came from like Braveheart in Pearl Harbor <laughs> and we were soldiers yeah. and they called them. So. Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> I know it, it really was because I grew up, you know, a, a Braveheart fanatic. I loved We Were Soldiers. I, you know, I didn't love Pearl Harbor, but what are you going to do? <laughs> <laughs> what if, what if I liked, what if I liked Pearl Harbor? <laughs> no, you really, yeah, you love Pearl Harbor. You can love Pearl Harbor, right? It's, gonna, it's not on my top. It's not on my top. We'll leave it. I'll, we'll leave I'll, it there on the floor. Yeah. <laughs> it can seem a little bit like a badge of honor sometimes, like having those failures and people are just like, oh, yeah, you're going to fail. Congratulations kind of a thing. But it actually is quite helpful. You know, I think one of the things that we try to accomplish, even just like talking one on one with these filmmakers is knowing that it's okay to do whatever it takes to like invest in your career or, you know, like, and if that includes Uber Eats, if that includes, you know, a a full-time job or a part-time job on the side, you know, like do what you need to do kind of a thing. And I think the more that people can have a realistic view of what to expect, (laughs) you know, as in like, oh, hey, he was actually delivering food too. So like, I'm not doing that bad, you know? No, Uh, and I, to speak to that, you know, I still work 
I have a job. It's a unique job where I, I restore ancient arms and armor for, for private collectors and for objects that are, you know, historically significant that pays my bills. And I would say this to anyone, whether you're acting, directing, writing, there's not a lot of middle class, you mm. know, it, and, and, and this is sort of a theme for the country in general, the middle class yeah. is disappearing in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. And, and the unions are either being vilified by people that don't <laughs> want to pay union rates and thus are put in a tough position where they're, they're not necessarily negotiating hard enough with streaming services who aren't paying residuals or, mm-hmm. you know, so, so finding that steady gig is becoming increasingly difficult. There's people like Ava DuVernay who, who was, you know, a marketing executive, you know, and, mm-hmm. and then, and then made the transition. There's people like Bukowski who were like handymen or like plumbers, you know, and then mm-hmm. they, if you love what you're doing, you're going to find ways to do it. I mean, you know, and I'm, I'm, not, I'm not putting myself in their company by any means, but in the sense of sacrifice, mm-hmm. you know, when I went to the bank, it was the most money I'd ever had in my bank account in my life to put a down payment on a house. And when I transferred it instead into a new bank account to finance a movie, I felt nothing. I felt truly nothing. My heart didn't beat faster. I didn't feel hmm. nervous. I felt like I was buying a Tootsie Roll at a 7-Eleven. Like it was the most mundane. And it's because I don't want to do anything else in my life. So mm-hmm. why, what else could I, what? There's not a better scenario I could be putting myself in than getting back behind the camera mm. and and making that next film. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, you're right. Whether it's wh- whatever you have to do to do it, yeah. do it. Because if you're not willing to do that, you're you are in the wrong. <laughs> <laughs> you're you're on the wrong path. I just I, you know I hate to say it that that cut and dry. And it, yeah. and, and I don't think someone should give up because they don't feel like would I sacrifice everything right now? No, but I like writing. Keep writing. Mm-hmm. Don't, don't or keep directing or keep acting. It's not that. Yeah. Sometimes you find that, but it's you have to understand that there are people out there. You know, right now there's some kid being born into like a situation that's so difficult we can't even fathom it poverty that's beyond our our wildest dreams and that young girl young boy is like shot listing at the age of 10 you know Mm. and they are going to become a director and Mm -hmm. they are going to and that's your competition or that's that's who's coming for the spot they want they want it really bad and hopefully you get to collaborate with them and not compete with them but (laughs) yeah 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 yeah. we uh, like that here (laughs) yeah 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 but it's a reminder though that that some people will die for their art, you know, mm. will sacrifice everything and mm. they don't mind working that side job. It doesn't, it, you know, they don't mind, you know, doing whatever it takes to give themselves another opportunity to to direct a film or, or put a script out or, yeah. or act in, you know, an episode of The Walking Dead. So let's talk about that, that film, you know, that you would sacrifice everything for. So tell us about 1-800-HOT-NIGHT. I guess it was a couple of years ago. I was I was writing a series of essays just about myself growing up. I, I it was just kind of creative exercise. I wasn't doing it for anyone else, just for myself. But when I was 13, 12, 13, 14, you know, in that age range, me and my friends would, you know, cram into phone booths and call these phone sex operators. And mm. There was one number in particular that was called one eight hundred hot f u c k, and so I would I would call this number, and then after you know a couple of minutes, we would you know abruptly be hung up on. But I was writing an essay about this, and I thought I had to make a really fun intro to a movie, 
And I knew I wanted to kind of, you know, explore some of my childhood, some of my youth in an autobiographical way in a film. Mm. And I, again, you know, pandemics raging, sort of realizing I, I, I wanted to kick this script into high gear. So I, I really only having that first scene in my head just kind of jumped in and started and started writing the script and all three of the lead characters tommy o'neill and and steve are in some ways all little different versions of me and then in some ways also representing some benchmark friends or foes in my life i always felt like there's some things that i saw or went through when i was young that really thrust me into adulthood too early i was very interested in exploring that creatively that point or that nexus point right where where youth and adulthood sort of cross paths mm-hmm. and you know adulthood is really that riptide you you, you don't really have a choice mm. at some point right and it can happen from trauma it can happen from joy mm. it can happen from many things you know it's not it's i don't think it's all just traumatic stuff it, it, so when i went into this film my approach was to do it with a sense of urgency sort of think can i write this film that all takes place in one night hmm. that explores some of these themes of of crossing that threshold into adulthood, what it means to to take responsibility for yourself, for your family, friendship breaking, friendship continuing, brotherhood. There, there was just these were some of those things I wanted to explore. The first draft really was, you know, close to what ended up being shot. It just was one of those scripts that really poured out of me and had a lot of truth in it right out of the gate. I have a writer's group that I was hosting that met weekly. And so I workshop some stuff with them. That was really the genesis. And I had my, my wife, who's also my producing partner, playing Ava, the phone sex operator. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's easy to workshop the character with her. She's there. We work well together. Mm-hmm. And then right right away, I start going into shot listing. You know, I'm just like, okay, I got to start building out the, the directorial side. Mm-hmm. And, and all these things kind of go hand in hand. You're almost doing them a bit simultaneously. But Again, really knowing no matter what, we're going to make this film, whether we made it for just our own dollars or we were able to get other funds, which we were able mm-hmm. to get, you know, like matching funds, basically. Mm-hmm. So this film, you know, was shot for under a quarter million dollars, which, mm. you know, is a lot of money, but it's it's nothing. It's just a very little money to make a film, especially yeah. to make a, a SAG film. So you, With you have to children and at night. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. With children and only shooting at night where and in the height of summer, so it doesn't get dark until nine PM and ah. yeah, and they have to be offset by midnight. So it's <laughs> it's you only have three hours a night to shoot on an eighteen day shoot. So it's just a, a lot of obstacles there. Dang. But Jeremy Gordon and, and Shana Sherwood and Nicole Doro were our casting directors. They brought a spectacular cast mm. to the table. I had some people in my back pocket that I worked with before, like Sean Kerrigan, who whoever mm-hmm. on Lolo came in and acted like i said ali trevor georgeson who's a producer on the film also but plays a character these people i was able to just pop in and and know that they were going to crush it we followed the covid protocols and luckily just didn't no one got sick you know and that that no matter what you're rolling those dice Uh, yeah 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 but we were we were fortunate we didn't get crushed by something (laughs) okay i know that it can be like hit and miss with child actors i would love to know like your best day, your best day on set. Can you remember like, oh, we've got it. Maybe my favorite day was shooting the phone booth, the opening scene. <laughs> okay. uh, yeah. We had, we had time. 
so every day felt so crammed but that day was just so constricted to this phone booth that it mm. you know i didn't feel like i was in a rush being in that phone booth just threw me right back to childhood our friends delivered a bunch of fresh yerba mates in the cooler so i had my favorite caffeinated beverage ready to go <laughs> you know the smoke machine was flowing yeah. everything just worked it just it was one of those <laughs> days where it was just like it just felt so good yeah. and it looked so good that day and being on a miniature golf course was so fun those are kind of like my favorite days. And and I'll say that, you know, these, these kids never dropped a line. I mean, mm. they were so professional, Dang. so dialed into their characters that it just, they made my job so easy. Dallas Garrison and Mylon, who play the three, you know, male leads mm -hmm. just, you know, had, they have such a well that they're pulling from that I really felt like. I was in good hands with them. Orly Gotsman and, and Jayla Walton, Shalay Brannon and, and Maddie Adams play the four girls mm. that are sort of in their life. So spectacular, so sweet, just great, great actors. Mm. They, they made it, again, just so easy for me. It was like, even back, all of these actors in their Zooms, you just you just knew i said ah, this person yes 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 it just <laughs> all felt so good and this happened across the board i mean there just wasn't yeah. a single person that that created an issue awesome yeah oh, that's so, so nice. just yeah <laughs> really fortunate really really fortunate on that yeah, on that yeah, side yeah. of things there are plenty of things that go right and there are also plenty of things that go wrong yeah. one of my favorite things is to ask about the things that go wrong <laughs> everything <laughs> everything goes wrong whoever's listening out there if you're a director understand that literally everything will go wrong so plan and plan and plan mm. and then have a b plan and have a c plan because <laughs> if you don't you are like hanging upside down you know being dipped into the ocean by some torture device i'll throw a couple examples at you we had a location a friend said yes you can shoot here great can't wait paperwork signed whatever 7 a.m the day of the shoot oh 7 a.m the porta potty gets delivered well apparently that caused a bunch of noise because the truck makes a beeping sound when it backs up and porta potty comes down the renter had signed the agreement but the owner didn't the landowner oh, the, oh shoot yeah kicks us out and so we got to be on set in a few hours to start rehearsing and and we're losing our location that day we're so tight budgetarily. There's no such thing as losing a day. We can't lose a day. I don't right. have the money. I would have to right. sell my car to get <laughs> cash to make up the money or, or yeah. take out a new credit card or something. I, I don't know. There's, yeah. It's not an option, right? I didn't have a backup. I didn't. And that's, you know, again, this is what it comes down to. Why you, you want to make sure the director, you also, you, you know, your producers have their stuff lined up. We didn't have the proper paperwork, right? And mm -hmm. had we had the proper paperwork. It wouldn't have been a problem had I wrapped my brain around the fact that we didn't have it, then mm -hmm. I should have had a backup plan and, and mm -hmm. I didn't. And then this is how the sort of movie gods shine on you in moments like this is that mm. the guy dropping off the porta potty is getting yelled at by the neighbors and, and, and then we got to call him and we're like, put the porta potty back on the truck, back on the truck. <laughs> we don't know what to do. I'm so sorry. And he's like, well, how much are you paying him for this? Were you going to pay him for this location? We tell him, he goes, you can shoot at my house. <laughs> And so the porta potty delivery guy takes us to his place out in Chatsworth, and it's an even Stop. better location. It's Stop like this! What? It was perfect. And in fact, <laughs> amazing. Half of the opening, like kind of montage of the film during the credit sequence, was shot in this amazingly cool 
alleyway behind his house that was not in the script, but then ended up becoming a place where I could shoot this fun B-roll. So it just turned out to be like 10 times the location the other one did. That's amazing. So something that went terribly wrong that swung. Now things don't always swing. So for example, (laughs) on the last day of filming, which you, it's your denouement. You want it to be this wonderful night. You're going to have a martini shot and toast. And you think it's going to be this like beautiful hugs and like, instead it's just, again, everything goes wrong. Dallas pulls his hamstring. He can barely run. And it's a scene where he's like running to the power lines and he gets kind of tackled. So the actor's injured. We're waiting for the sun to go down because we can't shoot in the daylight, right? Because we had to go rig up this light over on this other property, there's this like giant pit bull just barking, barking, barking. So that's going to ruin every shot. Then we have to have a police car drive in because the police are kind of like coming to find Tommy. So now it's dark and it's dark. It's time to shoot because once once the sun drops, it's it's the ticking, the ultimate ticking clock. You only have three hours to shoot, which is impossible, right? So shoot mm-hmm. six pages in three hours. I mean, but you know, Steven Spielberg shoots two pages in two days. You know, it's a joke. Mm-hmm. It's like, wait, you got a six, <laughs> six pages in three hours. I, I, the, the production van, I'm like, we got to move this out of the way. Oh, the PA's lost the keys to the production van. There's only one way into the location. So now the cop car can't get in. So we can't start shooting because we can't find the keys. Oh, my stars. Um, so just losing time, losing time, losing time. By the time we find the keys, get the van moved. Now there's the dog barking and this, homeless man sitting on the other side of the fence and Allie's character Ava the phone sex operator is like on top of Dallas's character yelling at him well this guy is yelling everything back like mimicking it all back ruining every take and when he's not ruining a take the dog is ruining the oh take. my gosh so like luckily the neighbors on the other side of this fence because this man was like yelling and screaming and it was late you know, they got the cops came and escorted him to like, you know, somewhere else because he was probably a mental health crisis. I, I don't mm-hmm. know. And we were able to go and, and ask for the love of God, like, give this dog a, a bone or something so it'll <laughs> stop barking at us. And it was just a total catastrophe of a night, like to the point yeah. where I was almost in tears where it's the end of the film. And yeah. we've gotten all the way to this point, which is mm-hmm. already almost impossible in any way. So it was just a really rough final night. And Mm -hmm. because of it, I had to schedule a pickup shoot. We had to go back there another Mm -hmm. day because we just didn't get it. And I was lucky that, you know, my actors had the time. And that is like the tip of the iceberg of the things that went wrong. Mm -hmm. (laughs) There's this like tennis court that we were shooting at. That's like a basketball court, tennis court where the boys are walking past it. And we wanted this like smoke machine. But so it was essentially what it did is it, it like melts these mineral oils and creates like a fog and it dripped all over this tennis court and ruined it. So we had to pay to resurface this. I get just oh. problem. Yeah. I mean, things that you just, ugh, you know, that yeah. you just couldn't imagine. We, we have like this major prop that everyone listening always have duplicates of your props. I don't care. <laughs> like have duplicates. We're like getting toward the end of the shoot and this prop is like a centerpiece of the film. It's, it's, oh, no. and we lose it. It's gone. Our, our production designer can't find it. He goes home and like whittles one out of wood to match the plastic one, paints it. I mean, it's a perfect replica. It's shockingly good. Yeah. But yeah. luckily, you know, again, one of our other castmates, this is just to go to show you how random this world is. We lose it. We're up till like three in the morning, driving down streets, looking for it, trying to find it. Our, 
one of our actresses, Kimley, if Kimley ever listens to this, you're, you're an angel, was going for her regular Sunday walk and she found the hammer in like a gutter. <laughs> I know. What? I know. Well, what? I don't know how, what the odds are. We were shooting in her neighborhood. She just happened to be a few blocks. And so it clearly got put on the roof of a car. Oh my gosh. The car, it fell off, yeah. ends up in this gutter. She's walking, yeah. picks up and finds it. Mercy. Production brain is a thing because I have completely put my production binder on top of my car and I like would see pages fly off in my rearview mirror and I'm just like, those looked important. Sure enough, they were. <laughs> You're like chasing I, papers down the highway. It's the most ridiculous thing. How movies get made is beyond me. Like just random stuff like the porta potty guy. Like that's that's fantastic. But you're just like, okay, you could have never seen that coming, obviously. No. But <laughs> No, it's impossible, right? Yeah. It's just like an impossible thing that Yeah, yeah. That happens, but you're just like, How did that? <laughs> How did that work out? But yeah, oh, yeah, so those are just yeah, a lot of lot of things, a lot of things went went wrong, and then yeah. things went wrong in the screening. I mean, we we're in Deauville, you know, one of the most spectacular film festivals in the world, mm. and we're screening to fifteen hundred people in a sold out theater in the Dang. coast of France. And you're like, this is my dream come true. The movie starts playing, and it's too dark, and it was the, the DCP got messed up. Imagine a DC film. Yeah, you see it? Okay, great. <laughs> just like that. Yeah, like a DC. No, but it was so. Or what the 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 long night the the Game of Thrones episode where everyone said they couldn't see. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Everyone's <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. This was turning so up the brightness. Yeah, this was like I, I'm hoping this is going to be like that big, glorious moment, and yeah. I'm just sitting there wanting to rip my hair out because the 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 footage is too dark. I got to call our DCP place, get a new one sent over because something got messed up in the settings. Dang. And it was because we didn't have time to test it. Mm. before we got to the theater because I was gone so mm. on, on other festivals then had to go straight to France. So it was just mm. like, did you stop the screening? No, you had to let it go. Cause I didn't have anything to yeah. substitute it for. I, yeah, I had yeah. to just sit there and cringe painfully, like be tortured by this, this moment, you know? And it, again, just heartbreaking stuff just never stops. So. <laughs> and like, those are the moments that your blood just runs cold too, because you can't do a thing about it. It's, uh, it's rough. You can't do a single <laughs> thing about it. Yeah. Yeah. You just have to I, watch it happen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You mentioned Lolo and that is also kind of a similar like coming of age flavor, you know, when it comes to confronting like sex violence and like uncertain future. Right. Would you say this is like a direction that your passion is compelling you towards like kind of like artistic purpose or is this just like, no, I think I just wanted to explore it, you know, that kind of a thing. Yeah, I, I, think, I think sometimes it feels like a little bit of both. This particularly was, you know, both of these were sort of exercises and exploration. And from the writing perspective, wanting to dig in on some of the, I guess, psychological elements that I've thought about and, mm -hmm. and also dig into some of the, you know, milieu that I grew up in and yeah. and show that on screen. I, I don't think it's really truthfully shown very often. And I was hoping to kind of bring some truth to that world. I think most of the time when we see, you know, young boys and young girls on screen, they're their parents are always like doctors and, you know, like commercial real estate agents and, you know, they're all doing really well and they live in houses and that's just not the world that I grew up in. Uh, so I, and, and similarly, even like with a project like Lolo, 
thinking about the young women that I grew up with were very powerful young women, very strong. They they commanded their worlds. And I think most high school girls are portrayed as kind of weaker and sort of subservient to the boys. And and my experience growing up was the exact opposite, mm-hmm. which was that the girls were very powerful. They determined who was cool. They determined <laughs> what was cool, you know, and, and, and they, they fought and they had sex and they did drugs and they were intimidating and, and, and you wanted to be in their company. You wanted to be in their <laughs> circle and things like that. And I, and I compare them against like, euphoria where everyone's just sexy and crazy and it's mm-hmm. like why you know and everyone it, it's mm-hmm. it's obviously a very that's like a very elevated sort of fantasy world of of the gritty part of what actually happens yeah whereas i was kind of hoping to more like get mired in the in the sort of smaller reality it's not easy to do obviously and i hope that audiences are able to connect with both and similarly with one hundred hot night you know look my next project that I'm shot listing now and getting ready to direct hopefully kind of late spring next year is what I'm eyeing is about, you know, a lesbian couple in Oklahoma that kidnaps a boy from a meth house and takes him on a run, <laughs> you know, and they kind of become a family on their way to Corpus Christi, Texas. And it's kind of a film mm-hmm. on Louise, like adventure thriller while the dad of this boy chases them. The script I wrote after that is a historical fiction about the overthrowing of the Honduras government in 1911 and this like monster mm. in the jungle starts killing people, you know, so it's like very different, <laughs> uh, very, you know, very, very, very different. <laughs> yeah, but, yeah. But I was interested in sort of exploring like some, some of the foundations of corporate colonialism in Central America. And this mm-hmm. was like a fun way to do it. And yeah. So I, I think sometimes kind of like following my inspiration. So if something really mm-hmm. speaks to me, if it's, whether it's through a book I read or an essay I wrote or something, and I'm wanting to go further than all, I'll get down to it and start hitting the pages and then that'll sort of guide me. And so the the why for me is really, I love collaboration. I, I love being in a team. I don't even have to be the leader of the team. In these cases, mm-hmm. directing, you are the leader of the team, but mm. I really enjoy being a part of a, of a collaborative creative process. Like for me, when a story starts to form in my head, I have mm-hmm. to tell the story. It feels like it has to come out of me or I'm going to like explode. Mm-hmm. That is what keeps me going. I get inspired by art, by books, by music. And I want to be a part of that community. And I want to contribute maybe to somebody else's life. And if, you know, if it's one or two people that see Lolo or see one or hot night and it helps them want to be a filmmaker, then I feel like, I feel like that's a huge win you know, a big, a big positive. We're going to talk a little bit about the nuts and bolts of things now. So like, I know several people who have now finished their first and even second feature films, and they're kind of along a spectrum. You talked a little bit about this, like about how you funded, like self-funded, like done in conjunction with an educational entity that funds it, or even a studio that might green light it. There's like a whole spectrum. So I'm curious where 1-800-HOT-NIGHT and Lolo fell, even when it came to distribution and how you came to make a deal, a distribution deal. Yeah, so both Lolo and 1-800-HOT-NIGHT are made for the same budget range, a quarter million dollars, very Mm -hmm. cheap movies. They're independent dramas, so if you're Mm -hmm. not making a genre film, it is really difficult to sell an independent drama today with no celebrities in it. It's obviously different if, you know, Kate Winslet is in your movie or something, or Ryan Gosling, (laughs) you're you're going to have a much different different outcome than with, you know, kind of no-name actors. There's movies out there that have been made, like Beasts of the Southern Wild, that did really well with no known actors in it, but they were very powerful 
people that start pushing behind these movies and all of a sudden, mm. you know, you see like plan B entertainment or Barry Jenkins, or, you know, you start mm-hmm. to look at some of these independent, and you're like, boy, these are really major producers that are, mm-hmm. you know, pushing these through, you know, it's mm-hmm. a little bit of like a, which is great by the way. It's just, yeah. it's like a little cheat code they get to have for their indie <laughs> film where other indie yeah. films that are like, don't have that contact, don't mm-hmm. have that person championing them. It is really, really hard right now in the current environment because mm-hmm. streamers, have the most money and they're not really buying mm-hmm. they're licensing mm-hmm. for for cheap but they're not really buying anymore they, they they they're making their content in-house you know companies like a24 and neon they're not really buying indie films out of festivals they're not like going and it's all kind of a lie in a way like a lot of these deals that get announced at sundance the deal was already made before sundance they're just announcing it at sundance yeah. so it looks like it was made at sundance you know yeah, yeah. and so I think in a practical sense, know this going into it, know that basically nobody wants your independent film. Mm. And if you can go into it knowing that, and you still want to make it great, then you're making it because you love this film and you have to get it out. Now, can you still get a distribution deal and have it go out and do something great? Yes, of course. And then there's where it comes out. But, but I think you should be prepared to do a lot of the legwork yourself. So I'll give you this example with Lolo. We did not get a cash offer for the movie. It was strictly a revenue share deal, right? And so a revenue share deal typically looks like, hey, we'll take 20%. You'll take 80% of every dollar that comes in. But, but we have marketing expenses, by the way. So we got to recoup uh, those first, right? And they, uh, they, yeah. they kind of... So when you're negotiating those contracts, you need to put a marketing cap on there and you need to audit them. I think a lot of people mean well, and then they just start taking your money. <laughs> you know, and they and, and they justify it. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm being honest with you. I don't think yeah. they're like actually. I don't think people look at themselves as evil or doing bad. Yeah. I think they are looking at their business and going, "Well, I did do all this work, and da da da." And next thing you know, you're, you're not getting the money you're supposed to get for your movie. And yeah. so those are things I think you have to be responsible for following up on those things. So in a situation like with Lolo, it's a straight TVOD, you know, streaming type deal. Mm-hmm. with an 80-20 split and we retained our own theatrical rights. Mm-hmm. So we put a little budget together, put a budget aside to release theatrically in Los Angeles and New York and to go do a road show, like a publicity show. Yeah, That helped us get reviews and get kind of like Rotten Tomato certified reviews. Mm-hmm. We did these event screenings in cities that we knew we could like pack the house, right? So Seattle, Portland, I'm going to the Northwest where I've got friends and family. You know, in Phoenix, Arizona, where one of my producers is from, right? So you're, you're mm-hmm. hitting these kind of benchmark cities that are also good film cities. Yeah. You've got to kind of start to look at distribution as a hybrid. I was calling news stations saying, I'm going to mm-hmm. be in Portland this day. Our movie's showing there. Can I come on Good Morning America there? Sure. Mm-hmm. I'm all of a sudden, I'm on the news in Portland and Seattle and in Arizona mm-hmm. and Las Vegas. And these are really great things. These are great mm-hmm. opportunities. So anyway, I just, these are the kinds of things that like, you know, I think you should be prepared to do and Mm -hmm. to have your movie achieve some success. And Lolo had this really great critical success where like NPR Film Week and Variety and LA Times, some of these very respected reviewers that I always was excited about really responded well to the film. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it could go the other way, by the way, they could have hated it and I would have (laughs) cried. You know, it's not up to me, but then, you know, following up with money hunter hot night you're you're just back to square one you're going okay well let's go and so i took what i learned from from lolo and mm-hmm. made a new film and hot night got into some bigger festivals you know mm-hmm. so 
that's where that film festival circuit can be really helpful. We we had a world premiere at Santa Barbara International, and then you know played at Dead Center and Dances with Films and Woods Hole in Massachusetts and Deauville in France, obviously, and now Twin Cities Film Festival and Hell's Half Mile. It just kind of kept going in Portland mm-hmm. and Vashon Island, and yeah. and now we're playing at the Austin Film Festival. And so then that, then people start to pay attention for this deal with quiver. we similarly did a, you know, a revenue share deal that we were happy with because there were certain stipulations in there that made us feel like quiver was really going to back this film. They really believed in it and they wanted to take it out and do what's best for it. And on top of that, playing in Deauville, playing in France and getting French press and reviews has created a second scenario where, now we're getting foreign distribution offers Mm -hmm. and those are becoming lucrative. So the movie has this chance to make all of its money back just on foreign sales. You can kind of nickel and dime that out where you can go to a film market like AFM, which Mm -hmm. will be, you know, this, this weekend and going into next week. And all the, there's a lot of buyers there. So you can go and host a screening of your film and have a one Mm -hmm. sheet ready. They're looking at it, you know, not that different than the U S market. They're going, Oh, there's, this is not, this is an indie drama, no stars. Mm-hmm. Okay, you know, maybe we'll just do a revenue split or we'll give you $10,000 for Italy and $20,000 for South Korea and $40,000 for Latin America. So you can kind of like carve it up and mm-hmm. sell these chunks out. Yeah. Or you can work with a foreign sales agent who takes 20%, but then they have a little bit bigger Rolodex and they're the mm-hmm. ones out there negotiating for you. And they're, of course, incentivized to some degree to get you the best deal possible. Gotcha. But I truly think as an independent filmmaker, assume you have to do it all yourself. And as long as you keep that mentality, and even when someone comes aboard, you are still going to be responsible for getting the word out. You're still going to be responsible for the follow-up. Nobody's ever going to care about your film more than you. Mm-hmm. So protect it, you know, protect, yeah. protect your art because that even that financial success of it is the opportunity that, to make another film, you mm-hmm. know, and another film, a, a lot of one and done, you know, because it's just, the expectation is so ludicrous, right? Is it, hey, oh, you want to be a director? If you're a prolific director, one of the most prolific directors in the world, maybe you get to make eight films in your lifetime. <laughs> you know? Yeah. yeah. Eight. That's not enough times to practice. <laughs> eight. You know what I'm saying? Like, what are we doing here? This is insanity. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Why a lot of people say, if you want to get break into the business, make a horror film. Mm. There's a reason they say that. And it's mm. because... There's a built-in audience there that doesn't need a celebrity. They're just stoked to support the new horror film. So if mm-hmm. you can make one for cheap and make your money back, well, then you've signaled to the world, the filmmaking world, that like, hey, legitimate filmmaker, if you give me money to make another film, I have a track record. I'm one of one for getting mm-hmm. you your money back. Mm-hmm. And yeah. now you get to make another film where there's, do I think if Christopher Nolan made the following today, would people care? If Robert Rodriguez made El Mariachi today and put it out, do I think like it would move the needle? Mm. Um, I don't know. Mm. I don't know. I mean, now first time filmmakers are making like $40 million movies, you know, and <laughs> with special effects or, you know, and I don't know. I, I think it's changed a lot. I think there was a time where people said, yeah, we get it. You're, you like did this with nothing. You made a movie for 10 grand. Well, here, let's, let's support you now. Let's build you up. I don't, I don't know if that's, 
existing as much anymore. So I say that to say like, it's on you as the director, it's on you as the writer and the producer, director, whatever your position is to see it all the way through. And don't assume anyone's going to come with like a magic wand and go, well, now that you made your movie, let me take it over from here. I'm going <laughs> to, oh, you know, and, and, <laughs> I'll and take your money. Yeah, now that yeah. you've already done all the hard work. <laughs> that, that's more realistic. Is yeah. that here Now you've done all this hard work. You spent your life savings. I'm going to bleed you now. I'm going to mm. vampire you. I'm going to Dracula mm. your ass. <laughs> <laughs> Expose yeah. your neck for me, please. Uh, uh, <laughs> you know, get um, easier for me. <laughs> yeah. My and gosh. and so those are some of the realities. I think there's just a ton of beautiful, wonderful filmmakers out there. I, you know, again, just leaving, coming back from Deauville was this magical experience where I met just some really spectacular writers and directors. I really loved spending time with and was able to commiserate with and and, mm. and feel supported by and support. And so I think too, as you as you go out there making projects, it starts to attract other filmmakers and friends. And, oh, yeah. and so there's a really beautiful side to it also. So you were talking a little bit about finances and we're just going to dip into this for somebody who is wanting to create their own film. Like what could they expect to budget for themselves? You know, like you've kind of alluded to the fact of like, Hey, you know, whatever it takes, but at the end of the day, do you reserve some of that for like seed money for your next one? Or like, do you pay yourself for all that time? I mean, yes, you have your full-time job, but like, is there a trade-off in there? And like, what's the pivot point for that for, for you? Yeah, I, I mean, so full disclosure on both films, I I know I didn't pay myself. I paid other people. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> so yeah. I was investing I mean, and, in yeah. both of them. And that's good. Yeah. I mean, like when you when you invest in the smarter people in the room kind of a thing, you know, you yeah. get the good you get the good people. Yeah, and I think this next film, I am raising money and not investing myself, but mm -hmm. feel like I've invested in these last two films to prove I can do it. Mm -hmm. This next film, we have some investment backing and that I will pay myself from that. And I think yeah. there are some standards, you know, 5% of the total budget for a director, 5% for a writer. So if you're the writer, director, mm -hmm. you know, but you're not going to want to give yourself 10% of a low budget because you want the money to go to the screen. So you'll probably right. take 5% overall. Right. You know, so if you're, you know, if you're doing a $5 million movie, you know, paying yourself a quarter million dollars, mm. you, you could, you could look at that and go, oh, that's a lot of money. You know, whew, that might be a bit much, mm. but it's not, it's nothing. You're going to work on this thing for two years after taxes, living in Los Angeles. Yep. You just rented yourself a one bedroom apartment. That's it. Mm. You're not doing yeah. anything special here. You're just, yeah. you're just living. So, so I would, you know, I would say don't undervalue yourself in that sense. And, mm -hmm. you know, I will be working that in more on like a standard rate. And and mm -hmm. there's things out there like WGA, DGA rates that exist out there that you can use as a benchmark too, right? Yeah. So you can say, yeah. you can lean on those things and say, well, look, I know I'm making this independent film. You, you go out and you fundraise a million dollars to make your indie first feature. And, and maybe you don't have a job that's flexible. So you actually have to quit your job yeah. to take this job. So you mm -hmm. do need money. That's where I think it's a good idea to start leaning on those DGA minimums and say, well, look, if it's $60,000, like that gives me some time to make this movie and not, you know, driving Uber every hour. I'm not on set because that's hard. You know, it's just hard mm -hmm. or, or whatever, you know, whatever the, mm -hmm. whatever the side hustle is. So, mm -hmm. and, and on the writing side, if you're out there, like the TV shows scenario, I mean, if you're out there trying to sell a show, you know, my last two negotiations were, you know, a hundred, about a hundred, yeah, a hundred thousand dollars for the pilot. 
mm-hmm. script. And then my follow-up show was co-written and we negotiated a quarter million for the script mm-hmm. split, right? So then, so it's yeah. about, what's so a 125 each. So I think, you know, if you're out there writing and trying to sell something to a network, I think you can, you know, despite what they tell you, you can pretty much get yourself to like a six figure for the pilot salary, you know, nothing below 75,000. And dang, we should have you back to talk about writing. Just, just writing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, well, it, you know, it, it's a really nerve wracking process because when you're a writer or a director yeah. and you're kind of getting those first jobs, you know, in the studio's sort of legal department can feel like a bully, mm. you know, and feel yeah. like, without fail happens where like the producer that you're working with at that studio starts calling you going, Hey, why are you going to blow this deal up asking for more money? You know what? You want more points. You want a better credit, fight for your credit, fight for your points, fight for your salary. They're lying. They're lying. They're lying. It's a negotiation technique. Like Mm. don't buy it, man. You know? Mm. And if they want to walk away, fucking walk away. Bye. Yeah. I'll sell it to someone else. Then, you know, put, tell them to walk away. You know, you know, value yourself. And if you value yourself, other people will value. And it t- took me quite a bit longer than it should have to realize that. Yeah. I have no problem investing in myself. I'll spend every dollar making the projects. But when you're out there on the sales side and you've got a script or mm-hmm. you're going to get hired as a director, you know, push the boundary, mm-hmm. you know, pu- push them as high as, as high as you can get them to go. You know, when I saw how Netflix was paying these like executives that had not a creative bone in their body and they're they're, like throwing half a million dollars at them. Like it's a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, you know, I, I, and then they're paying their like writing staff and their actors, like nothing. Mm. I, you know, I understood why their stock price plummeted and you go, Mm. Oh, right. You guys aren't getting it. Mm -hmm. You guys aren't really Mm. getting how this works. The talent's over here. Yeah. You know, like they'll leave you. Because mm-hmm. Jeff Bezos has more money. Eventually, Amazon will just pay you more, pay these mm-hmm. artists more, or, or Disney will. You'll yeah. get poached. The executives are are fungible, man. These mm-hmm. guys, they lose their job every year. Try to track one down. You'll pitch to one person that's, that's like a development executive at one studio, and then they're at another place next year and another place next year. They're all over the place. <laughs> yeah. I, I, and I don't know yeah. if they're getting fired or promoted. I mean, whatever. Yeah. It, it, it could be all kinds of things. But like mm-hmm. your ally is not there typically you know so fight for yourself yeah yeah absolutely okay so we're gonna ask about the tools of your trade and Mm -hmm. gear and gadgets your favorite old reliable or resource or app or software you know all that fun whichever i really love studio binder actually i use it for shot listing i use it for scheduling i i think it's a great one-stop shop i love their youtube channel i kind of use studio binder for everything i get inspired by it they'll do denny villanueve youtube breakdown for 30 minutes on you know his shot selections in in his films and how he uses these angles and and you yeah. just, it makes you want to go out and be a better filmmaker so studio binder for me is a big one there is a website out there called shot deck not too mm-hmm. many people have heard about it. It's still like in beta phase, okay. but I would suggest going and if you're a director, going and making an account because it's beautiful still images mm. of all your favorite movies, you know, a lot of your favorite films. Mm. It tells you when you click on one, it's got all this metadata that tells you what it was shot on exterior, interior, mm. what lenses it was shot on, what camera it was shot on. Mm. So as you start to storyboard and you're looking for you know, not it's, it's can't, 
I've never had a storyboard artist, can't afford it, right? Mm. So everything I've done has been using still images mm. that already exist to kind of try to embody the shot that I'm thinking about and then mm. just verbally explaining it. Shot deck has really changed that for me where now I, I really can pull out these spectacular images that have the right texture and, and then yeah. have the right data. So I'm able to say to my DP or to my crew, well, they used this right. type of light right, right. to create this orange glow. Yeah. So maybe we don't use a sodium vapor this time. Maybe we use this with a gel or something, whatever mm -hmm. it might be. So th those are kind of two favorites on that. And your uh, favorite new gadget that revolutionizes how you work. That might be the one. Shot deck might be that. But yeah, <laughs> yeah. Or your, your you like, favorite industry-related new purchase. I don't know. Anything. A company called Atlas put out some very affordable lenses. Mm. And we got a, a set of anamorphic lenses for very, very cheap compared to what anamorphic lenses would cost yeah. you know, anywhere yeah. else. And I think they're a beautiful set of lenses. We shot low, low on those lenses. What's their price range, if you don't mind? So like the 42 millimeter Mercury series anamorphic $5,000. I, you know, a three lens set $15,000 for a 36, a 42 and a 72. But like just saying that's, that's very cheap. Yeah. Yeah. We bought a three lens package, nice. you know, and used money that we got from commercial directing gigs to finance that. So it wasn't like coming out of pocket. We kind of yeah. got a gig and took the money and yeah, absolutely. So it's always like having good glass ready to go. You can mm -hmm. kind of go shoot anything. Yeah. And I will say too, like what we shot another, you know, for gadgetry, the, the Sony A7S Mark III is just such an accessible camera hmm. price wise. Yeah. The sensor is amazing. You can shoot in like the lowest light imaginable. So I would highly, highly recommend if, if you can get your hands on one, you're looking to shoot your first feature. Mm. I think it's a great, great camera. And then just get yourself some, you know, decent glass. And the question that I like to wrap up every interview with, what questions should I have asked you? How do you know where to like trust your instincts on casting? Like, like, mm. I, I think that's a, that's a situation where like, you can hire a really great casting director and have really great casting directors, but follow your instincts for, I, I, and I will say this, I have friends, I won't name names. They're amazing people. Some of my best friends. And they just get wrapped up in beauty. So some beautiful man or beautiful woman gets in front of the camera and they're like, got to cast that person. I'm like, did you, were you watching the same thing I watched? Cause like, you know, still you're beating that, hard and, 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 yeah. and, and pay attention next time. Okay. Take two. Casting from the directorial standpoint is so critical. And I think being a great director starts with being great at casting and knowing who's going to bring truth to your roles that because those are the people that are, you know, they are the conduit for the story. Mm -hmm. Once you call action and you can set up the most beautiful shot in the world, but if someone's sitting there, you know, like a robot, you are dead in the water. I mean, yeah. there's no victory there. So like, I, I would say that one of the most critical, critical aspects is finding a cast director that you trust and then totally distrust them in the casting room so that you are like, really redlining everything they say to make sure that you are truly getting the best person for you also someone that you feel like you can dip into their well and draw performance out of so you know that would probably be that last thing of like casting nice. casting 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 yeah nice well we really appreciate you being on the show how do people find you or follow your work um, kind of easiest place is Twitter and Instagram. You know, Twitter is just at 
Nick underscore Richie. Instagram is Nick Richie, the number eight on, you know, on those social media platforms. I have a website. It's www.halfwaycrooksent.com. And uh, yeah, the film has their own webpage, uh, 1-800-HOT-NIGHT-FILM. So nice. a couple ways. Well, extremely fantastic advice and tangible practicalities that we love here for our upcoming directors. Thank you so much for sharing your experience and for your time. Thanks so much. Pleasure. 1-800-HOT-NIGHT is now available on iTunes and Amazon or anywhere else you can buy or rent. And Lolo is streaming on Paramount+. Plus. If you enjoyed this interview, follow us right here and on Instagram, ask us questions, and check out more episodes at thepracticalfilmmaker.com. Be well and God bless. We'll see you next time on The Practical Filmmaker.